You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we continue to revisit some of my favorite podcasts from the past in this Millennial Investing Rewind. If you've missed our previous Rewind episodes, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you could pick up with our new episodes next week. Also, if you've been listening for a while, you know about the fee for this show. And if you're new, I want to let you know that we do have a fee for listening to the Millennial Investing and Real Estate 101 podcasts. It's not a monetary fee. I don't want you guys to have to pay me anything to listen to the show. I'm actually happy and proud to be able to bring this to you guys for free and provide all of this content for free. But what we ask for the fee is for you to share this show with one friend. For every episode that you like the show, just share it with one friend. I'd love it if you shared this across social media and told hundreds of people, but you don't have to do that. You can satisfy the fee by just sharing every episode that you like with one person. If an episode makes you think of something in a different way or teaches you something new, just share that episode with a friend. And we've made it easy for you to do that by creating what is called starter packs. So what we've done to make it easy for you guys to pay the fee is created these things called starter packs. We've basically created five or six categories that all of these different episodes could fit into from beginner stock market investing to personal finance and a bunch of other different categories And I've listed out my four to six favorite episodes for that category. So if you want to share the show with somebody, you can tell them to check out the starter packs and they can pick which category and which episodes they want to check out. Or even if you're just looking to find some episodes in a certain category, you could check out those starter packs as well. You can find those by going to theinvestorspodcast.com slash M-I starter packs. That's theinvestorspodcast.com slash MI starter packs. And if you want to connect with me directly, the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram. My username on both is the Robert Leonard. That's the Robert Leonard. T-H-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-L-E-O-N-A-R-D. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. Hey everyone, on today's show, I sit down with Scott Trench to discuss his career advice, personal finance, investing in real estate, picking individual stocks, and much, much more. For those of you who may not know who Scott is, Scott quickly progressed through his career by becoming the Vice President of Operations at BiggerPockets.com just one year after he graduated college, where he is now currently the CEO. He is also the author of Set for Life, a successful real estate investor, and co-host of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. I hope you all enjoyed this educational and thought-provoking conversation with Scott Trench. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and I have Scott Trench from BiggerPockets.com here with me today. 
Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I'm super, super excited to have you here today. As I mentioned when we were talking briefly before, is I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours and your book and, and Bigger Pockets in general. So I'm really excited to be talking to you today. And I gave a brief introduction about you already, but can you talk to us about your story? I want to hear about your journey from college into the corporate world and then how you realized that that wasn't necessarily right for you and you want to go into real estate investing. And then, you know, now you're ultimately CEO of Bigger Pockets. Can you walk us through that journey? Yeah, awesome. So I went to college at a, a school in Nashville, Tennessee. It was Vanderbilt University and joined a fraternity and really wasn't really thinking, hmm, how do I just as assertively as possible build a career foundation here? It was more like, I'm going to get my degree, have a great experience and see what happens after that. Money was not a topic in my head. However, I was surrounded by a lot of wealth while in school with a lot of my peers. You know, some of the, the folks that I went to school with would have a concept of money of, hey, my father makes a lot of money. And so when my bank account runs low, my father's secretary will fill it back up again. And that's my relationship with money. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. After college, I went to Europe for a couple of weeks with a couple of buddies and spent the last few thousand dollars that I'd saved up working summer jobs and all that kind of stuff. At my first job, I was making about $48,000 per year. And within three months, I was, I was very ambitious. I wanted to kind of make an impact at the company and have and, and leave a mark and, and make, make a difference. And so I would use my path as a financial analyst to think, like, how can I save the company a lot of money? How could I make a lot of money? And it really felt to me very quickly that there were few opportunities to have an impact and be able to kind of drive my career forward in any meaningful sense beyond the established linear progression that you might have at any traditional corporation where you go from, hey, financial analyst one to financial analyst two to senior financial analyst, finance manager, and then over a course of 20 years, maybe work your way up to a senior management in the hunt to be a better financial analyst and learned, oh, wow, there's this thing called investing and building wealth through you know, passive income. You know, There's a variety of influences in that process, but the two websites businesses, brands, whatever you want to call them, that had the biggest impact on me were biggerpockets.com, where I currently work, and Mr. Money Mustache, if you're familiar with him. Mr. Money Mustache had the, has this theory, you know, he's, he's, he's got a very solid and robust philosophy around building wealth. I mean, I began cutting back almost all of my expenses. So I'd never been a big spender, but I started really kind of ex- expanding on that. I brought lunch every day. I cut back everything that wasn't an expense. I invested in our employee stock purchase plan. I got my expenses as low as I possibly could. And then I also applied that knowledge to the concept of real estate investing, which I love from biggerpockets.com. So I really kind of absorbed this approach of, hey, if I am very frugal and I invest in real estate, I can build wealth very aggressively over the next couple of years. So that was the start of the career, I think, in in my journey toward financial independence. Within the first year, I I was able to save up about $20,000 between my wage income, savings, transitions. One was joining BiggerPockets as a third employee. And the second was buying a house hack, a duplex here in Denver, Colorado. That kind of got me started on the path toward financial independence. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, Plus, available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof, 
you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Now, before we dive into your book a little bit more and more personal finance and some real estate stuff, I want to talk about your career path because it's really interesting. And you had a few years of experience or just, you know, maybe one as a financial analyst and then you became you know, a VP at Bigger Pockets. How did you progress your career so rapidly? And what could a millennial who might feel trapped in a, you know, a regular corporate ladder? So I was looking for opportunities to leave that job in the summer of 2014, which is about nine to 10 months after I'd started. And I was actually deciding between a job as a real estate agent at a, at a small brokerage and this small startup company that I was a fan of, as I previously mentioned, called BiggerPockets.com. And I remember meeting the founder of BiggerPockets.com and, and knocking on his door and saying, "Hey, oh my gosh, you're Josh. I I'm a huge fan. You know, I'd love to come work for you or help out." And he told me to go away, kid, a couple of times. So I followed up six more times to kind of get connected with him and learn from BiggerPockets. I just and eventually that led to in the position of director of operations. So it was my title at when I first started. So I was doing customer support. I was keeping the books. I was selling ads. You know, it was just like a whole hodgepodge of various different things to learn and do and figure out, you know, to help whatever it is that Josh needed help with for those first couple of years. As the years went on, that grew into more formal responsibilities like running teams and driving revenue streams. In 2017, Josh began taking a less active role in the business, and I became the president of the company in 2018. You know, you're not going to be able to do what you did at a Fortune 500 company. You had to take on a little bit more risk by going to a smaller company with only, you know, three employees. So I think that's a really important thing for millennials to realize is that sometimes you have to take a little bit more risk and put yourself out there if you really want to take that big step in your career. 
along those same lines of taking a risk, can you talk to us about the idea of someone staying in a corporate job with a stable income, but not really being scalable? And then on the other side of it, where you could leave a stable job and risk and take, go into a riskier job where you have a much more opportunity to scale, whether it be through a side hustle or going to work at a startup or, or something along those lines. Talk to us about the ability to scale an income versus just being stagnant. Yeah, sure. So I, I think you have to kind of just take a realistic assessment of the situation. So if you're at, you know, in my case, there was no realistic path forward to a dramatic change in income at my job at Dish Network. It, it just was not possible, right? I was making $48,000 a year and there's no route to earning over $100,000 a year within the next three years, right? Maybe probably within the next five years. So I think that that self-assessment needs to be undertaken at the first point. The second thing is, okay, so how do I earn more money in a, in a rapid fashion, change your dollar per hour output? I think that's where you have to go in and take this concept of risk, right? And risk, I think, is very interesting because when I was at my job, you know, I was... I was earning $48,000 a year, but I was only spending twenty or 25000 right? So was it risky to take a job that paid less but had higher upside for me? I don't think so. I think it was that was an opportunity and that was a high probability bet. I had much higher odds of having less wealth five years further out by not taking some other opportunity with scalable income potential than, I, than if I had stayed at that job. So my risk was actually higher, in my opinion, with that job. Now, most people do everything in their power to get the highest possible base salary, and then they spend basically all of that and have just less than one or two or three months liquidity in their bank account. Right? So when you do that and you take a job that pays less but has higher upside, that is risky because you're at, at a very serious risk of running out of cash. So I think, what is my advice? Spend way less than you earn, stockpile a lot of cash, so you have a long what I call financial runway, which allows you to survive without the need for wage income. These things that you we're talking about as risks and the income front actually are more opportunities. If the odds of success are far greater than the risk of failure, or you cannot tolerate even a little bit of risk of failure, you're going to miss out on millions of opportunities. Yeah, I think that's so good. And I think what you said there really flips a lot of normal thinking on its head where a lot of people think that taking a lower base salary with more upside is more risky. But like you just said, it's actually not. And and the first point of that is you need to be able to get your spending under control so that you're able to take advantage of those opportunities. And you need to think about it from a risk perspective, like you said, is it really more risky to lower your potential income where you could earn much more? So you really need to be able to define risk and and see what it means to you. So now I, I want to go into your book, Set for Life, a little bit here. In the very beginning of the book, you talk about three rules. And the first rule you say is that people must accumulate real assets that produce income and increase in value. And probably the first step that people must get right. What kind of advice would you give to a millennial who doesn't want to live you know, that practical life and would rather splurge or, or live in the moment? You got to spend less, earn more, invest efficiently. And then I would actually add a fourth, which is you can create assets as well. But I think this is also another powerful lever. First step is spending less, right? Because the lower your lifestyle expenditures are, one, the faster, the easier it is to accumulate capital with which to invest. What advice would I give to somebody who doesn't want to spend less? Well, I'd say you can have it all. The average American spends half of their household expenditures are in housing and transportation alone. The 13% is in food spending, right? 
So if you're following along, that's 63% or almost two-thirds of your spending is just in three spending categories. Those are not the areas where you're living in the moment, right? If you optimize on those three areas, you live in a cheap apartment with a roommate or better yet, house hack, which is I'm sure we can cover at some point in this where you, you know, buy a place, rent it out and live for free. And you buy a cheap car for cash or pay it off quickly and you know, use that or bike or walk. If you travel hack, you can really save a tremendous amount, likely 50% or more of your income if you just optimize in those three categories aggressively. And then you can actually spend in some of these other categories and have a good time and enjoy and live in the moment while still making rapid progress toward financial independence. The sacrifice or the big challenge is in making the decision to in what you drive, where you sleep, and then what you eat. And if you make those three choices appropriately, you can have the other things, I believe, as well. And that reminds me, I just read Ramit Sethi's new book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And that kind of sounds like what he was talking about there, where you need to have a conscious spending plan, where if you don't spend on the things that don't bring you a ton of happiness, like your house or you know your food, it's probably not going to be a huge source of happiness for you. You can splurge and spend as much money as you want on the things you love. And I think that's absolutely a great point. And you've mentioned house hack. Can you go a little deeper on that for us? What, what is house hacking for someone who might not know? House hacking is one of the p- most powerful tools, in my opinion, that can get you there. I buy a house or a duplex or a triplex or something like that with extra units or bedrooms, and I move in and rent out the other units. And if I do it correctly, the rent from the other units can cover my mortgage. So for my specific example, in 2014, I purchased a duplex in downtown Denver. And I fixed it up, moved in, rented out the pla- rented out the other unit, and then rented out a bedroom in my unit. So all told, my the the rental income was seventeen hundred dollars. I think it was five fifty plus eleven fifty. My mortgage was fifteen fifty. So if you're following along, that's one hundred and fifty dollars or seventeen hundred dollars in rent, fifteen fifty in, in mortgage, and I'm clearing about one hundred and fifty a month. But I'm also operating the property, so I'm probably breaking about even on this structure. I put down twelve thousand dollars. And I put in probably about, let's call it $8,000 to get it rent ready. You know, if I go from paying $550 or $600 a month in rent to paying nothing in rent, that's an annual savings of $6,000 to $7,200 a year. That's an immense amount of cash flow to save in a, in a year relative to my prior situation, right? I'm also benefiting from appreciation. I'm also paying down the mortgage. The tenants that live in, in Denver are at much higher risk than I am because over the long term, I think we all agree that rents are likely to continue rising, not fall off a cliff. Many people are doing that same type of purchasing, but buying a home outright and not having other people rent it. They're just paying the mortgage. It is by definition, a far more risky financial position to be in than the, the position that I was in. And then third, even if rents fall, I'm going to be having much more help paying down my mortgage. In the vast spectrum of possible scenarios going into that purchase, I had very high probability of increasing my cash flow, building wealth long-term. That's why I'm a big fan of this house hacking concept. And I guess that's a basic introduction to that concept. I agree that it's, it's a very powerful strategy. It's actually, I house hacked my first property as well. Why do you think they come out of college and, and don't consider this idea and, and maybe either go rent or maybe buy a house or something like that? I spend my time trying to convince as many people as possible to do this because I just think it has so many advantages and so few disadvantages. I don't know. I've kind of learned to accept that a lot of people are just not going to do it and are going to miss out on what I think is literally a multi-million dollar difference maker over a 30-year relative to the other ways you can live your life. Just this one decision 
even if you live there for just one or two years, could make potentially over a million dollars over a 30-year period. I don't know why more people don't do it. If you're listening to this show, hopefully one of the people who is considering doing it and will rationally assess it. Now, I think that some of the things are, you know, my deal was particularly effective in building wealth, and maybe yours was as well. But perhaps some of the characteristics that made it our deal is particularly attractive would make house hacking unattractive to other people. For example, the neighborhood that I bought my deal in. But there's a whole spectrum here. So I could have done the exact same investment at, you know, a much a higher price point in a more luxury area. I just would have not covered my mortgage completely and been, while I would have been better off than renting, it would have been a less dramatic wealth building difference, but, but still very powerful. So I think that maybe that spectrum is not in place. And, you know, people are like, hey, I'm reluctant to buy a house hack if it's not a great investment, even if it's way better than the alternative of renting a luxury apartment downtown. So I think there's a lot, there's a number of reasons there. A lack of education too, potentially, you know, I mean, how many, they don't teach us in college. I certainly didn't learn about it in college and I definitely didn't learn about it in high school or anything like that. And what's awesome about the strategy too, is you can do it more than once. We, we talked about doing it for your first house, but I mean, you're, if you're coming out of college, you're 22, 23 years old, you can live there till you're maybe 24, do it again till you're 25, maybe do it again, 26, 27. And now you've done it three times. You own three rental properties that could be generating a ton of cash flow for you, creating a mass amount of wealth. And you're not even 30 yet, and you still have the rest of your life to, to live. Now, let's shift gears from real estate and talk about the stock market a bit. I know you have an interesting opinion on picking individual stocks in the market. Talk to us about that. When you look at the compound annual growth rate of the S&P 500, beginning of 1928 or October 1928, up until about 2016, 2017, talking about a high before the market, and then 2016, which is also a moderate peak. We can argue about the, the long-term, the CAGR all day log, pick your own number, but let's say it's 10%, right? If I'm going to be picking stocks, which involves work and research and diligence and timing and all these other types of things, I need to earn a better than 10% compound annual growth rate for that to be worthwhile. And doing that is a very difficult endeavor. Most people are not very good at that. And if you are good at that, you're likely going to be managing a large pile of other people's money, that alpha, that excess return and excess of the the S&P 500's return by two or 3%. So that's what you're talking about and operating a big fund and producing that that kind of alpha. And people will pay you very well to do that. I believe that there's two reasons why this is not a good tactic for an investor with less than 100 grand in liquidity that's invested in the market, really less than a million. The alpha is very difficult to produce. It's very difficult to actually outperform the index, and it's not guaranteed. Even if you do produce that alpha, even if you are able to get a 12% return on 100 grand instead of a 10% return, the amount of time you're putting into it, 2% is going to be two grand. That might equate to 10 or $12 an hour, and you can probably generate wealth far more efficiently doing something else. Intuitively, that makes a lot of sense. And I hadn't necessarily thought of it that way myself until I read your book because I've always been an individual stock picker since I started investing in the markets. We talk about picking individual stocks a lot here on the show. And of course, I think it's a great way to do it if you enjoy it. But I always enjoy hearing and learning the other side of the argument. Just because I like picking individual stocks, that doesn't mean it's the best solution for everyone listening. Some listeners may be better off or enjoy taking your strategy, Scott. I recommend people think about it objectively and decide what is really best for them. Maybe someone listening to the show today doesn't want to invest their money in the market at all, whether it be with your strategy or mine. It's certainly possible for someone to take that money that they were going to invest in the market 
and invested in creating a passive income producing asset that they can own or benefit from for years and years to come. Talk to us about the idea of creating a passive income producing asset. Sure. So this is this is very difficult, right? So the, the, so we've, we've got three other approaches that we discussed to building wealth, right? We've talked about how we can earn more income, spending less money, and then investing according to an approach that you think will generate long-term equity value at a great rate, right? Well, if you're doing all of those three things and there's still plenty of time left over, now the creation of an asset is very hard. How do I make one very quality attempt to generate a passive income generator? I tried driving Uber. I used that as an experiment to make extra money. Right, it didn't work. I tutored for a couple of months. That ended up being a very low income activity. I tried a house hack, and that worked. But you can see this trend here over the last couple of years. I've tried multiple different things, some of which have worked, and some of which haven't. Yeah, I think one of the big key takeaways there is that you just keep going and you keep going and you keep going. You said multiple times that you failed or it didn't work or it cost you a little bit of money and you never saw the return but you never got discouraged and you kept going. And by the law of numbers, yeah, nine out of 10 are going to fail. But like you said, over a period of time, you will have successful ones that will generate cash for you. And you just have to keep with it and and not give up. And I think another point that maybe gets millennials is they think they need to generate or create the next Apple. I think you need to keep that in mind. A side hustle doesn't have to be a billion dollar company to help you generate wealth or generate cash. My real estate portfolio is boring, right? I don't see them. You know, I get a text every once in a while from a tenant saying the sink's leaking, and I go and call the plumber and tell him to go over there, right? Like this is this is not an exciting business. But the properties are slowly appreciating. I'm slowly paying down the debt, and my cash flow increases, right? And so that's the machine here. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work 
taking forever to close the books, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their book in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. Business owners know the power and simplicity of using one tool for things such as scaling up their business, adopting new business models, and easily viewing real-time analytics on one interface. NetSuite offers the unprecedented ability to make all this possible. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com mi. That's netsuite.com mi to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com mi. All right, back to the show. I want to talk about this concept you have in the book between the difference of fake net worth and and real net worth. I think it's a very important thing for people to learn, just people in general. But if a millennial can learn this early on in life, I think it could completely change their life over the next 20 to 30 years. Can you talk to us about the idea and your concept of the difference between the two net worths? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, you know, from a very basic and and an obvious discussion of it, you know, if you if you buy a car, you buy a new Mercedes, right? That Mercedes is going to depreciate in value over the years. You have to, you know, fill it up with gas, all that kind of stuff. So a car is an easy one. Piece of clothing would be another example of this. Real net worth is something that is generate cash flows. So retirement accounts for me, I wouldn't consider them a real asset in the same sense that I would consider my rental properties because I do not intend to access my retirement accounts early to fund financial freedom within the next few years. But if I'm looking to retire early in my 30s, 20s, 40s, retirement accounts and home equity are probably not going to be contributors to that. When I read your book, that that really lit a light bulb in my head. And it really made me think about my own balance sheet and what my real net worth was in comparison to my fake net worth. And I think if, if millennials can learn this now and start working on this over the next 20 years and really focus on their real net worth and not what society thinks, they're going to be much, much better off. So guys, if you have to go back and listen to this part again, it's very important and really focus on, on building your real net worth and, and not so much your fake net worth. If you're looking to achieve financial freedom or build a real net worth portfolio with a variety of assets that you can tap into, then you better be accumulating significant after-tax liquidity that is not trapped in a right in addition to whatever you contribute to the 401k. If you're going to get a match, you definitely have to take advantage of that. But outside of that, it's not going to be useful for your life now. And it's going to help you a lot in 40 or 50 years when you retire. But for now, it's not going to help your financial freedom. So if you had a close friend of yours who's probably also a millennial or a millennial family member that had a couple thousand dollars and they want to start investing and they know you do. So they come to you for advice, whether it be investing in themselves through self-improvement or courses or learning a new skill, or maybe starting a side hustle or investing in the stock market or real estate. What would you recommend that they do with their couple thousand dollars and why? So let's say you have 2,500 bucks and you're like, what should, how do I get started on this? Sure. You can dump it in the stock market. That's $250 next year. You probably earn 50 grand if you're a median income earner in this country. That's not even 
1% of your annual earnings. I don't think the few thousand bucks is going to make a difference on your journey to financial freedom. I think you need to set down and focus on how do I accumulate at least five figures in after-tax liquidity over the next 12 months through discipline, grit, hard work, sweat, and hustle. And then how do I make a real meaningful investment like a house hack with that? I'm going to try to push you towards moving rapidly toward financial freedom. And I think that's what you need to do to get there. There is no great use of that money. You know, you can get books from the library that are going to give you everything you're ever going to need to know. And you can listen to these podcasts like this one for free. I would say pile it in the bank account, put an in index fund or whatever, and then forget about it and just keep focusing on building the next five-figure after-tax liquidity chunk so you can make a real bet that will actually drive you towards financial freedom. Yeah, that is great, great, great advice. I think people look too short-term and want to do something with their money too early. Whereas they need to wait until it's a material and can actually do something for their long-term future. I think that's absolutely great advice, Scott. But that, that, that 2500 bucks in that example, right? So if you have that in your emergency account, that, that's a really good start for a lot of people because now breaks go out, whatever. You're not going into debt or accumulating a bad debt if you have that amount of liquidity. But that's just a starting point. And if you want to move toward investing, accumulate the larger amounts of liquidity comes into play. Yeah, it puts you into a, a safe spot that you can take on a little more risk and not going to put yourself in a bad position. Before we wrap up the show today, for those who are interested in learning more about you and all the things that you have going on, please share where people can go to connect with you, Scott. Sure. You, you can check out bickerpockets.com and, and type my name into the search bar. You can, I have a profile there it's, uh, and, and reach out. You can email me at scott at bickerpockets.com. You could listen to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. I'll be sure to put links to all of these in the show notes so you can get in touch with Scott. I would highly recommend looking into everything everything he puts out on the internet. Look into Bigger Pockets. It, it changed my life. It changed Scott's life. And definitely go pick up his book. I really love it. I have it here sitting next to me with probably 100 or, or maybe more different sticky notes and highlights through it. Thank you so much for your time today, Scott. I really appreciate it. And you added a ton of value for the audience. I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you, Robert. This is great. All right, guys, that's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.